1: Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: And here we are. Episode number 47. Crazy. Thanks kitten. so much for tuning in to this many episodes, everybody.
0: I know. It's been... It's wild. It blows a, my mind.
1: Yeah. And it's been a crazy last several weeks, I feel like, where yeah. we've been like, oh, People are actually listening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're super excited to like watch the numbers climb and all of that. Super fun. Yeah, We appreciate every single person who listens to even a minute of any of our episodes. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think everybody is always dying to know. What are you drinking?
0: I'm keeping it simple with a vanilla latte tonight. I just made a little latte. You're trying to really stay awake. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the caffeine at this point is just a comfort more than a um, awake aid. What's the, there's gotta be a, a stimulant, awake, <laughs> awake aid. Yeah, Ugh, wake boy. hyphen aid. Maybe I do need the caffeine. <laughs> what about you? What do you have? I
1: pulled out that uh, little cocktail thing, the On the Rocks Premium Cocktail Collection I got for Christmas. Wow. And uh, I know there's several of of these, and I'm only on like the third or fourth one. And uh, today, I decided to get a little spicy. Oh. I know. With the jalapeno pineapple margarita.
0: Wow. That is a little spicy.
1: I know. It tastes awesome. Good. I I love uh, a good jalapeno alcohol drink. I don't know why. It just like, it tastes more fresh without being like minty you know sure like i don't mind that either but like it's a different kind of fresh and i i like that a lot so huge fan uh 40 proof so i'm gonna really take my time sipping this good idea (laughs) uh we're old now we can't
0: just chug it we've got to just pace ourselves
1: (laughs) oh man yeah but uh yeah that's what i'm drinking tonight awesome yeah good stuff My love, do you have a feel-good fact for us today?
0: I do. So January 20th, tomorrow, if you're listening on release day, is Penguin Awareness Day. Penguin Awareness Day? Yes. (gasps) All who observe the holiday are encouraged to wear black and white and are urged to spend some time learning about penguins and what they're all about.
1: Oh, good. This is like a regular Friday for us.
0: You guys have an entire day (laughs) to plan. and Anybody listening on Premiere Day, you have an entire day to plan your Penguin Awareness Day festivities. And for those who listen after the release day and after the 20th, you have a whole year mm-hmm. to prep. It's not too late to celebrate Penguin Awareness Day. It's
1: never too late.
0: But yeah, that made me happy. <laughs> I love penguins so much. I do too. They're so cute. For the
1: longest time, that was my favorite animal to go see at the zoo.
0: I know. They're so funny.
1: They are. It might, it might still be, but there, there's so many great things now at our zoo. that
0: The I old like
1: dooly, The old <laughs> Um, You have something special to share with everybody before we get into our story this week, don't you?
0: Yes. It's sort of like a dual purpose little announcement. Okay. So, um, okay. So I'm sure that many of you have noticed, but we now have ad placements in our show, which is exciting and fun for us because, you know, we started this as a hobby and we put a ton of heart into it and worked really hard. And so it's great that the show's gaining some traction and that people are enjoying it and all of that. And so we will offer episodes ad-free over on our Patreon
1: mm-hmm.
0: for those who would prefer to listen ad-free. Um, we have not uploaded previous episodes ad-free quite yet. We're kind of trying to figure out how to do that in the way that makes the most like logistical sense sure. so yeah. that patrons aren't getting 46 <laughs> notifications. <laughs> and yeah, so we're yeah. figuring that out. But more excitingly, the subscribers over on Patreon have decided on our very first ever doozy giving recipient. Oh yeah. Yes, so they voted and we have given our first donation to End Violence Against Women International. Just going to read a little bit about the foundation really quick and then we'll get into the show. Awesome. So this is their vision statement. We envision a world where gender-based violence is unacceptable, where perpetrators are held accountable and victims receive the compassion, support and justice they deserve. Mm. They do this first by offering specialized training to law enforcement and members of the criminal justice system. They also work with policymakers to ensure cultural change in a positive direction, and they offer support and aid to victims of violent crimes, as well as to family members of victims. We're so happy to be able to support the vision at End Violence Against Women International, and we are so thankful to our patrons and all of our listeners for helping us make that happen. So we'll give all of the Patreon logistics at the end of the show, but for now that is what I have for announcements.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks
0: for yeah, sharing. That's really that. great. I'll yeah. make sure to also put the foundation website in mm. our show notes in case anybody wants to go read up on it and maybe wants to give also. So, yeah. yeah, it's a great it's a great thing. They're like so multifaceted and they're tackling this issue from so many different angles. Mm. So, I felt really excited to be able to donate to that and, and support that. Yeah, that's so great.
1: I'm glad we're doing that. Yes. And thank you patrons, because really it's not just us. You're doing, doing, doing that. You're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Okay. So this week we are back with another true crime story in the spring of 1989. After four weeks of searching for a college student who went missing on spring break from Matamoros, Mexico, police were closing in on a location where they believed he may have been taken to. As police from Mexico and the United States closed in on a tiny shack in the middle of the desert, they had no idea that what they would discover inside would be a nightmare beyond their wildest fears and imaginations. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So before we dive in, dive in, here's the blanket content warning. This is an extremely graphic story. There will be mentions of violent death, torture, mutilation, violence against animals, sodomy, and more. I will offer another content warning once we kind of close in on that section of the story, but consider yourselves warned that this one is not for the faint of heart. Mm. It's just very dark and very gruesome. So brace yourselves for that.
1: I will do my best.
0: Okay. So we are going to begin by talking about the man who went missing. Mark Kilroy was born March 5th, 1968 to his parents, James and Helen Kilroy in Chicago, Illinois. When Mark was a baby, his family relocated to Santa Fe, Texas, which is a small town outside of Houston. And shortly after, Mark's younger brother, Keith, joined the family. By all accounts, Mark had a happy and fun childhood and was great at making friends. He was a member of the Cub Scouts. He maintained great grades, and he was a stellar athlete. He actually earned himself a basketball scholarship. Oh, wow. Mark joined the Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity and excelled through college just like he had in high school. He would end up giving up his scholarship at Tarleton State in Texas so that he could transfer to the University of Texas at Austin, where he became pre-med. Hmm. At the time of his disappearance, Mark was 21 years old and had been working super hard preparing for his medical college admission test, which is a mouthful. Yeah. And just for reference, the that specific process is like super grueling and it takes tons of focus and effort and energy. And so Mark was kind of in the heat of Mm. that process at the time of this story. Right. He had made plans with three of his longtime childhood friends who were all in the middle of their own hefty workload at their respective schools. The plan was this. Mark, along with his friends Bradley Moore, Bill Huddleston, and Brent Martin, would meet up and drive down to South Padre Island to partake in all of the fun and scenic festivities that the island and surrounding areas have to offer. Mm. They had made the same spring break trip twice already, and so they kind of had like a game plan pretty oh, nailed yeah. down and they kind of knew what to expect sure
1: yeah they on march veterans at this point of spring breaking in south padre
0: yes yeah you go there once and i feel like that's one of those places yeah. where like you kind of get the feel for what it's going to be like yeah
1: i have never been but uh, i know lots of people that that's where they've gone for a spring break here mm-hmm. or there so yeah, yeah sounds like a pretty common like repeat kind of a place
0: yes So on March 10th, 1989, after each of the guys had finished their exams, they met up and drove down towards the Mexican border. As they drove, they caught up and talked about their futures and their upcoming plans. And it became super apparent that this would probably be their last hurrah. Like they're growing up. Hmm. Despite the fact that everyone in the group was in regular communication over the phone, like when they weren't together during school, there was kind of like a sense of finality Hmm. on this trip. You know, like inching closer towards their career dreams and away from the simplicity of childhood. Yeah. So the group arrived at South Padre Island on March 11th in the morning hours and checked into their hotel. Spring break in this area has been a huge annual affair since the early 1960s. Every year, somewhere around 250,000 college students flood the place. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize it was that many when I got I into this either. store. I knew it was a lot, but that's a lot. <laughs>
1: that explains why I've seen it as such a hot bed for college mm-hmm. students to go to
0: mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. So the beautiful sandy beaches and cheap nightlife, as well as the fun free events that are put on by sponsors in the area, from things like free concerts and movies to surf simulators and opportunities for students to like take place in being filmed in a commercial, yeah, like all kinds of things that are geared specifically towards welcoming spring break students. South Padre Island is a barrier island just off the coast of southern Texas. For most of the year, it's a small agricultural area with something like 2,500 residents who call the island home. On one side of the island is Laguna Madre, and on the other side is the Gulf of Mexico, just as like a little Mm -hmm. geographical note. Yeah, that's helpful. So the group were early birds on the island. There were not tons and tons of students in the area when they arrived, but there was still plenty to do. Hmm. They went bar hopping and spent a little bit of time kind of like relaxing on the beach. They made friends with a group of female students who were staying at the same hotel, and the trip was going pretty pretty smoothly. You know, it was about what they had hoped it would be. On their second night, the group ventured over to the Mexican city of Matamoros. Matamoros is a city in northeastern Mexico in the state of Tamaulipas, And it's just a few minutes from Brownsville, Texas. Hmm. The Brownsville-Matamoros metro has a population of over a million people. And like many large cities, it of course has its dangers. Sure. There's a relatively high rate of mostly drug-related crime and like drug-related violence. And that was also true at the time of today's Mm -hmm. story. Okay. But beyond that, Matamoros is a very popular tourist destination. Located right along the Rio Grande River, it's easily accessible by the Gateway International Bridge, so which is like either a driving bridge or a Mm footbridge, like very commonly a pedestrian bridge. Okay. On night two of the trip, the guys parked their car in Brownsville and made their way across the bridge and into the Matamoros nightlife. The bars there offer cheap drinks, and the city is very relaxed about drinking laws, Hmm. so it's definitely a spring break hotspot. Yeah, yeah. there's kind of a culture of like hyper-awareness of American tourists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And locals are encouraged to be like extra-friendly and helpful, whether they're like selling kids some weed or some drinks or whatever. Right, Like if yeah. don't heckle them, <laughs> yeah. we want them to spend want, their money and come yeah. back and spend their money again. Yep. So on their first night in Matamoros, they spent their time enjoying drinks and dancing at the Sgt. Pepper's Club until nearly 3 a.m. But March 13th, spring break, was fully in effect Mm -hmm. and there were tens of thousands of students going to and fro in the Matamoros area the four friends were living it up and having the time of their lives the city was electric and so full of life and the boys were making the most of it despite the long lines outside of many of the bars and clubs they decided to just like we're just going to pick one with a short line and go in and enjoy it yeah so that's what they did Eventually, they made their way over to the Hard Rock Cafe where Mark accidentally became separated from the group. Mm. But the night was young. The guys partied with the thousands of other college students before they met up again and began walking back towards the Gateway International Bridge to head to the hotel for the night. Mm -hmm. So in the chaos of the crowd, the group realized that it would be pretty hard to like stick together because it was like shoulder to shoulder foot traffic. Oh, yeah. It's very, very crowded. They all did know where they were going, though. So they kind of paired off. So they split into two. Mm -hmm. And so Bill and Mark are in one pair and Bradley and Brent were in the other. As they were passing a bar, a girl that Mark had met back at the beach on the first day of the trip kind of like waved him over. Mark went over to go chat with her while Bill ran off to find a place to use the bathroom. Bill was not having a ton of luck finding any privacy outside, but as he was like kind of scanning for maybe a little area of privacy, he believed that he saw Mark talking to someone in a pickup truck. It Mm. was dark, so he couldn't really make out much of the driver's appearance at that time. So Bill finished up his business, but when he came back out, Mark was gone. The three friends were reunited and continued like walking towards their car in Brownsville, assuming that Mark was probably just separated Mm -hmm. and up there waiting for them. When they arrived at the car, Mark was not there. Oh, no. Yeah, so they waited for a while, but there was no sign of him. So the group then walked back over to Matamoros, and they looked into every bar, restaurant, gift shop, club that they could. Yeah. Everything that was still open. But still, there was no sign of Mark. Mm -hmm. Around 4.30 in the morning, they decided that it was best to head back to the hotel, wondering if maybe he'd hitched a ride with the girl that they'd seen him talking to from the hotel. Right. Right. But when they got there, Mark wasn't there either. They wondered Mm. if maybe he'd been arrested or hurt, but it was super unlike Mark to run off and just not call anyone. Yeah. Like he would find a way. Even if he had to like jump through an obstacle course, he would figure it out. Right. So he was very responsible and cautious, always making sure to call his friends or family if there was so much as a change of plans Mm -hmm. or if something had gone awry. But still the group heard nothing, saw nothing. No sign of their dear friend. So they went to the Brownsville Sheriff's Office and reported Mark missing that day, which was March 14th. Mm. Law enforcement in Brownsville were not immediately concerned. Right. Because spring breakers would regularly go missing. I mean, there would be tons and tons and tons of people who would report their friend missing, and the friend would show up a couple hours later with like a fun story and a hangover. Right. So there really wasn't much of a precedent to look too deeply into a missing spring breaker at this point. Yeah. But Mark's friends really didn't think that that was what was going on. They all had a really bad feeling about it. Shortly after Mark was reported missing, Brownsville police made contact with law enforcement in Matamoros, since Mark was technically last seen on the Matamoros side of the border. Matamoros police were not really interested in taking on this case. Mm. At that time, they had 60 open cases of desaparecidos, the disappeared, missing mm. persons, yeah. that they were not having any luck on, and so adding another one onto the pile seemed daunting at best. Yeah, Not wanting to waste any time, Bill, Brent, and Bradley made their way to the U.S. consulate in Matamoros and were able to report Mark's disappearance there as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Once again, there was not much urgency— but at this point, all there really was for the friends to do was to continue to look for Mark on their own and to hope beyond hope that he was OK. Yeah. It just really was not like him. Like, I feel like I'm kind of hammering that a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, but it, makes it sense. really
0: is just to make the point that they're kind of these are 21 year old boys. Yeah. And I'm not trying to generalize too much, but 21 year old boys aren't known for being like overtly <laughs> concerned yeah. about safety issues. Yeah. And so the fact that they were like, this is not like him. And all of them felt really scared about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like is a really important element of this part yeah. of the story. Yeah. No, so. that,
1: that, I think it's really important for us to like, just take a second and put ourselves in the position of a 21 year old who is actually scared of something. Yeah. Like, cause that's just not, I, I think like you saying, it's not common for them to be afraid for safety, but just in general to be afraid of a scenario, especially in a place that they've been to a couple times before,
0: right? So and Mark also was not like a little defenseless guy; like he yeah. was an athlete. He was like a large athlete, you know, yeah. like six foot something, right?
1: So, I, I think it's I think what you're what you're getting at is the right thing. Is just just to help us get a scope of okay, everybody who's immediately involved. Agrees, this is a big deal.
0: Yeah. And so, from the get go. Yeah. So, by 11 p.m. on March 14th, he still was missing. So, the group decided that it was time to tell Mark's parents what mm-hmm. was going on. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten into this much yet, but Mark was super close with his family. One of the books that I read for today's story was co-authored by Mark's father, Jim, and he really paints a picture of just how sweet and tight-knit the Kilroys really were. So when his friends, who Mark's parents also loved dearly, they called and told them that Mark was missing and that they'd filed missing persons reports, um, but they were starting to get worried, Mark's parents did not hesitate to pretty much immediately spring into action Mm. and to try and find Mark. Yeah. So, in the immediate hours following, the Kilroys were at a loss because there actually were not a whole lot of things that they could do. So, they called Mark's uncle, Ken Kilroy, who was a US customs agent in Los Angeles, and thought that maybe he could connect with agents in Brownsville to try mm. and get Mark's case taken more seriously. Yeah. Thankfully, this actually did work. Wow. Even though police in Brownsville were not able to do much. At this point, since this case was not in their jurisdiction at this time, Mm -hmm. within 48 hours of Mark's disappearance, a task force of United States investigators, as well as Mexican state and federal investigators, kind of joined teams. Mm -hmm. They decided that it was in everyone's best interest to do what they could as a collective to work together to find this boy. Their first move was to check all hospitals, prisons, hotels, and morgues in both Brownsville and Matamoros. Mm. But after three whole days, these efforts turned up nothing. No sign of Mark still. After those three days came and went, Bill, the last known person to have seen Mark, agreed to be placed under hypnosis in hopes of there being any clues, maybe like locked Hmm. away in his subconscious, that could help them find Mark.
1: That's very criminal minds.
0: Very criminal minds. (laughs) Yeah. So under hypnosis, Bill remembered a few very specific details. Okay, so remember how Bill loosely remembered Mark talking to someone in a truck? Mm-hmm. hypnosis sparked a memory about the driver of the truck. Hmm. The driver was a young Hispanic male with a scar on his face. He was wearing a blue plaid shirt and had been sitting in his truck. The man had kind of waved Mark over to the truck and had said something along the lines of, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? Hmm. But unfortunately, that was the only thing yeah. that they were able to draw out from Bill's memory. Hmm. Okay. Within a few days, the story of Mark Kilroy's disappearance had hit the news. Helen and Jim Kilroy had pushed media outlets to get Mark's photo and story out there in hopes of someone coming forward with more information. Yeah, They offered a $5,000 reward for information as well. Hmm. Mark's parents were worried sick and both cited the fact that Mark was not only extremely responsible, but once again, that he would always call if something had gone wrong. Yeah, They were convinced that he'd been taken off of the busy streets of Matamoros on that night when he was last seen. His friends also helped with getting the story out there and affirmed that what Mark's parents had said about him was true, mm-hmm. that Mark was too responsible to just take off. He'd never do it. So it seemed as though Mark had disappeared into thin air. Wow! News outlets and law enforcement theorized about what could have happened to him. Theories ranged from abduction and murder, or kidnapping for ransom, or that he'd somehow wandered off into one of the less safe areas of Matamoros and had fallen victim to any number of crimes. But with no leads at any local hospitals, jails, morgues, etc., none of these theories really led anywhere helpful. Oh man. While police from the United States and Mexico continued their search for Mark, Jim Kilroy also made his way to Brownsville and South Padre Island, and he roped up a bunch of volunteers who helped him pass out stacks and stacks of missing persons flyers. Wow. And Helen stayed behind at home in case anyone called their house with new information or in case, Lord willing, Mark himself called the home. Yeah. The Kilroys were a Catholic family with a strong faith and who had spent every Sunday in church. Hmm. Helen really leaned into her faith for comfort during this time. And every time she had that mother's intuition that something bad was happening to her son at that very moment, She would stop whatever she was doing so that she could pray for Mark.
1: Hmm.
0: So something about that just made me sad. Yeah. So she also tried very hard not to let her mind wander to the darkest what ifs that it could come up with, but she was scared. She would tell herself that even though Mark might be suffering right now, and even though it seems like it will be impossible to find him with the Lord, nothing is impossible. Like that kind of stuff. Like she was really, you know, she was worried, freaking out like any other mother would be, but she was really trying to like keep herself from
1: panicking. Yeah. Kind of take, take hold of peace and comfort in, in whatever way that she could.
0: Yeah. They really tried to stay positive the whole time. Yeah. I can't even imagine how hard that would be. (laughs) So, I mean, you're, you're laughing because you know that I panic about, we ran out of cheese for dinner or something. Right, (laughs) Right. Things that are not important, let alone a missing child. So, police efforts were maxed out at this part of the investigation. They launched helicopter searches along the Rio Grande River. They questioned at least a dozen known violent criminals in case this was an organized attack that had happened. Hmm. They did ground searches in Brownsville and Matamoros. They combed over other crimes that had happened around the same time that Mark went missing. And they discovered that a young woman had been assaulted and another had been robbed both within a few short blocks of the Gateway International Bridge and both American Spring Breakers, just like Mark. Mm, With the help of an additional $10,000 pledge, the reward money was increased to $15,000, and thousands of people across the country shared Mark's story or joined in on the search efforts. Mm. A little less than two weeks after Mark's disappearance, America's Most Wanted featured a 10-minute segment of their show that featured Mark's story. It was broadcast in both the United States and Mexico, and it was made crystal clear that the reward money was on the table for information and that the Kilroys had no plans to press charges in case someone's fear of getting in trouble was keeping them from coming forward. Yeah. They just wanted Mark home. This segment blew up, and there were something like 20-plus calls made each day with viewers on both sides of the border who claimed to have information on Mark's whereabouts. Wow frustratingly, as we are learning more and more on this show, many of the calls were pranks. Mm. Some were from psychics claiming to know exactly where Mark was. Uh, One of the psychics was a woman who claimed to have seen Mark cowering beneath a tree next to a large piece of yellow plastic with leaves rolling across the top of it. Mm. Another psychic called and said that she had a vision of Mark laying next to a witch's cauldron. On top of that, there were calls placing mark in just about every single state in the United States and across many different beaches in Mexico. A lot of people Mm. called and blamed refugees from San Salvador, which made me really sad to learn because there was a bit of like a political Um, thing that a lot of people from San Salvador were trying to escape. Yeah. And since the borders were closed between Mexico and America, there was like a a clog happening at the moment of people trying to find a safe haven. Yeah. It was just a really sad thing. Mm. It was really sad. But some of the other calls were actually more worth looking into. One caller was a woman who offered a tip that many other callers had. Look into Mexican police officers individually. Apparently, there was a bunch of corruption amongst the ranks of Mexican police at that time. And Mm. some allegedly had ties to various cartels and potentially to members of the Mexican mafia.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It does make sense. So this woman said that she overheard her husband, who was a police officer in Mexico, say that he had arrested Mark, but that Mark ran off during the arrest. Trying to stop him from getting away, the officer fired a shot, intending to miss him and, like, scare him into cooperating. Mm -hmm. But the shot actually hit him directly in his head, killing him.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: When police investigated the officer, he was cleared of all suspicion.
1: Mm.
0: Like there was really no merit to that story. Okay. Another call would come in in the next couple of weeks that would also feel pretty promising. Around 7.30 p.m., one, I can't, I didn't write the date down for this, but it was one night, a couple weeks after Mark had gone missing. Yeah. So Jim received a collect call from a man who referred to himself as Danny Lopez. Mm. Jim did not know anybody by that name, but he figured that maybe the call had something to do with Mark, so he accepted it. The caller asked to speak with Helen, and when she answered it, the man said one stomach-dropping sentence. I know where Mark is. Mm. He went on to explain that he had gone to a residence to purchase some weed and that when he was there, he saw Mark. He warned Helen that the men who have him are very dangerous and they would know if she involved the police, so do not alert authorities. Oh, wow. He told her that he needed to end the call right now, but that he'd call back in a few hours. Before he hung up, Helen told him, wait, And she asked if he wanted the reward money. Danny was like, wait, what reward money? How much is it? So she told him that it was $15,000. He claimed that he didn't even know that there was reward money. But yeah, like, I do want that money. (laughs) (laughs) And so he also said the men who had Mark were dangerous. And he was really putting himself out there by telling her what he'd seen. Mm -hmm. So he's like, it feels kind of like, I guess, a fair trade. I guess yeah. is kind of like the mindset. So at that point, he ended the call. Jim and Helen talked about their next move. They had been recording the conversation with a tape recorder and decided that they should discreetly contact police because they didn't want to get themselves into danger, sure. which was the right call, Yeah, in my opinion. So around 2 a.m., they received another call. This time, police were also listening in on the call, and they were trying to trace it. The man on the line said that he was Danny, but it was clearly the voice of a different man on the phone.
1: Hmm. He told Uh them
0: that he and the men involved with the kidnapping uh, knew about them calling the police, and so they wanted to test the Kilroys to see if they'd do what they'd said moving forward. They said they wanted $2,000 brought to them at 5 p.m. on the following day. They wanted them to give the money to a waitress that would be waiting in the restroom at a restaurant in Galveston, and then they needed to go over to the paper towel's find the 10th one, and on it will be a phone number that they could use to call a man who will allow them to talk to Mark for five minutes to prove that he's alive. After that, they'd arrange for the Kilroys to give them an additional $8,000, and then they would give Mark back to his family. They agreed to do this, but obviously had to strategize a little bit once again because Mm -hmm. this whole thing is very shady. But they were so, I mean, they're so desperate. They just want to find Mark. And this feels like the first actual lead Mm -hmm. you know so they got a call later that day saying the plans had changed that they would now meet at a payphone at a galveston gas station at the same time that they'd like originally agreed Mm -hmm. on then helen would give the money to a woman who would approach her and the woman would give her the number to call mark they told her do not involve police
1: Mm.
0: helen agreed but undercover police came as well to ensure helen's safety yeah just before 5 p.m Helen approached the payphone just like she said she would. For the next 30 minutes, police noticed a few people that appeared to be paying attention to Helen standing at the phone, but nobody ever came forward.
1: Hmm. So
0: they had no choice but to leave empty-handed. Later on, the Kilroys received another call. This time, they arranged to meet at a cemetery with basically the same instructions. Once again, Helen went under close police surveillance, and again, nobody came forward to collect the money from her. Hmm. It turns out two inmates at a prison in Galveston, Robert Miller and Wilton Smith, were behind the calls. Mm. One of them was in jail for burglary and one was in jail for extorting money from a family who had a missing child.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: So real, real salt of the earth, cream of the crop, folks. Yeah. I would be so devastated, like putting myself in Helen's shoes. I Mm -hmm. would be so devastated to be like, we're getting our child back. To find out it was a very, very mean, thorough prank,
1: yeah, wow, terrible, and they no one even gets anything out of that,
0: no, I what mean, get out of that, there could have been a woman, I mean, there could they could have actually planned to send like a wife or a girlfriend to that's true they could have, yeah, but nobody would, ever came yeah. forward, so how when, that's yeah. just a theory, you when know, the
1: girl didn't actually follow through then. It just didn't work out, whatever, you know.
0: Right. Hmm. So almost a month after Mark had gone missing, members of the community in Santa Fe, Texas had not forgotten about Mark or his family. Members of the community would tie yellow ribbons around their mailboxes or would pin small yellow ribbons to their shirts. They held Mark Kilroy Awareness Days at a local school. They had bake sales and benefit auctions. And overall, the community worked hard to support the search for Mark but things were still very slow going. Mm. No real progress. Yeah. One element of a lot of the calls made by people in the days following the America's Most Wanted piece was that many people had suggested that there could be occult implications to Mark's disappearance, while others suggested that maybe police should look outside of the city of Matamoros, mm. and maybe at one of the more isolated properties or slaughterhouses, in the desert areas. Oh, wow. Yeah. These tips, though, mostly guided by fear and like superstition regarding the occult, would actually turn out to be helpful. Hmm. So on April 1st, law enforcement in Matamoros had put up a sort of routine traffic stop slash like checkpoint that would allow them to stop each car and quickly kind of scan it for mm-hmm. drugs that were potentially being smuggled and preventing that kind of movement from happening. Sure, yeah. In the afternoon of that particular day, a red pickup truck with Texas plates went blasting past the checkpoint, past all of the signs and armed police officers that were obviously indicating a stop. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the officers who got a look at the driver recognized him. It was 20-year-old Serafin Hernandez Garcia. Serafin was a United States citizen who was sort of a runner between his family drug smuggling operations That took place Hmm. between Brownsville and Matamoros, with his father running the American side of the deal and his uncle, Elio Hernandez Rivera, running the Mexican side.
1: Okay, yeah. So I'm going
0: to blast a lot of names for the rest of this. Sure, sure. So that's just like a little heads up for people who are bad with (laughs) names. (laughs) Yeah. Although Hernandez operations were only considered like middle tier, they did have connections to some seriously powerful dealers. Hmm. Serafin had also earned himself a reputation of stirring up trouble in the local bar scene as well. Okay. So after Hmm. Serafin blew past the checkpoint, undercover officers began following him in an unmarked vehicle. They followed him to Rancho Santa Elena, um, which is about 20 miles west Hmm. of Matamoros. Eventually, they arrived at the small ranch where Serafin had parked. They parked off of the property, but close enough to kind of observe his movements mm-hmm. thinking they were finally going to be able to bust someone in the Hernandez family, like in the act. Yeah. But the whole time that they sat there, he didn't really do anything that warranted them revealing themselves and mm-hmm. attempting to arrest him. So after a short time, Seraphin left the property officers then pulled onto the property and began to look around outside. They took note of a large warehouse type building and a smaller wooden shack, livestock pens, and a bunch of very new, very expensive vehicles. As they were looking around, they ran into the ranch caretaker, a man named Domingo. One of the undercover officers told him they were lost and looking for someone to give them directions. Hmm. While Domingo was distracted, the other officer took a look around at a new Chevy Suburban, which is a big SUV. While it was loaded with new state-of-the-art features, more interesting to the officer were the traces of weed as well as a small cement statue. Mm -hmm. The statue was creepy with a pointed head and menacing features and would later be identified as an image of Alegua, which is a Palo-Cuban deity of the roads. Oh. So there are a few variations of this god and his functions, but in the Palo version, he's sort of like a sneaky trickster who fools his worshipers into offering him sacrifices that would secure them safety on their roads. Hmm. Once they could tell that Domingo was starting to become agitated, the officers decided it was probably time to leave. But they did come back like discreetly and set up surveillance on the property so that they could hopefully take down this big drug gang. Yeah. That's kind of like wow. on the rise. Yeah. So about a week later, police flooded the ranch for a drug raid, unknowingly preparing to stumble upon the answers to the questions surrounding what happened to Mark Kilroy. On the property, they found over 60 pounds of marijuana, several firearms, and with that, they arrested Serafin, his uncle Elio, as well as a couple other men. Uh, We've got David Cerno Valdez, Sergio Martinez Salinas, and the ranch caretaker Domingo, Mm -hmm. all on charges of drug trafficking. When Domingo was questioned, he informed police that he'd seen a young, tall, blonde man who had been bound and blindfolded in the back of the Suburban. Unfortunately, the captive young man only spoke English, and Domingo only spoke Spanish. Mm. But despite the language divide, Domingo felt bad for the young prisoner, so he snuck him food and water when he could. Mm. He said that by the next day, the young man was gone, and he did not know whatever happened to him. When officers showed Domingo a picture of Mark Kilroy, he confirmed that that was the prisoner.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yes. Meanwhile, the other men that had been arrested were giving the police nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. After several hours of intensive questioning, however, Serafin finally told them that the group all belonged to a religious cult run by a Cuban-American sorcerer named Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, a.k.a. Wow. the Godfather. He had convinced members of the group to engage in multiple ritual sacrifices in the previous weeks and months, and that if they completed those sacrifices successfully, they'd be granted immunity from law enforcement and from personal harm, and they'd also grow in strength and wealth. Seraphim just went ahead and told officers everything, eventually telling them that, yes, Mark Kilroy was one of the sacrifices as part of the cult's voodoo, as Serafin put it. What? Yeah. So, content warning. For the next solid chunk of the episode, I'm going to be getting into all of the stuff that I mentioned at the top of the show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just very gruesome and very upsetting. I'm not going to, once again, I don't like to go into the super gruesome details, but there's kind of no way around some of them. Mm -hmm. So there will be discussions of ritual sacrifice, violence against animals, torture, sodomy, and so on. And so if that's too much for you, you can either skip forward a ways, or we would be happy to have you listen into next week's show. Mm -hmm. But with that, let's keep moving. Within two days of Seraphim's confession, police were back at Rancho Santa Elena, Seraphim joining them to show them around. When they got there, they were led to a wooden shack near that large warehouse that I'd mentioned earlier. Before even entering the shack, officers were struck with a distinct stench of death and decay. Mm. And also before entering the shed, police were pretty well stopped in their tracks. One huge thing to understand here is that occult practices have long been very feared by many Mexican citizens. Mm. There are so many variations of all kinds of religions that sort of meld together, with offshoots of each sect and offshoots of those and offshoots yeah, of those and yeah. so on. With the Palo religion that we'll be sort of diving into, it's an African religion that sort of morphed with spiritism and Catholicism and was developed in Cuba in the 19th century. Hmm. That said, the officers were very afraid to enter the shack, fearing that they were opening themselves up to evil spirits, yeah. black magic, all of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Wow. But
0: they had a job to do, so they and Seraphin went inside. Upon first glance, officers noticed two very recently used candles, kettles with the remains of a dead rooster, a goat's head, a dead turtle, along with coins and sticks and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a statue of Allegua and a super dirty floor littered with cigar and cigarette butts, empty tequila bottles, remnants of peppers and garlic, and then some of the worst of what they'd find. Uh, Suspended from a beam on the roof were two bloody wires with blood also splattered all over the floors and inside walls. Wow. Seraphim informed officers that the wires were used to bind people as their blood was being drained during ritual sacrifice. Oh my gosh. In the same area was a large iron cauldron that's known as an N'gaga. The N'gaga is a large iron or clay pot that's typically wrapped in heavy metal chains.
1: Mm.
0: While it's used in various religions, it is a fixture of the Palo religion. The idea behind the N'gaga is that it's sort of indwelt or inhabited by a spirit of the dead called an Mfumbe, who grants its followers the ability to commune with the dead and acts as a guide for other rituals. Oh, wow. Inside of this particular N'gaga was what was described as a soup that was made up of a goat's head, chicken feet, a turtle... Various bones, herbs, coins, a horseshoe, hair, blood, and what looked to be human remains.
1: Wow. Which like
0: good grief, like not to be gross or like flippant, but it must have just reeked in there. Yes. It's like thinking about all of that decay.
1: Yes. There's so much. There's just a lot going on right there. And...
0: uh, Would that not be so shocking especially if you're coming from a culture that's afraid of that kind of practice, but it's only been like kind of theoretical until that point. Mm -hmm. And now you're actually stumbling upon the thing that you're most afraid of. Right. That would be so scary. I feel for the investigators on that.
1: I feel like it, it, even for someone like me who doesn't feel a whole lot of like fear around that kind of stuff, I would still feel very creeped out. Yeah. Like that's eerie and spooky. And not in like a fun, f- flippant is a good word. Like I'm, I don't, I don't say that flippantly. Like spooky, like ooh, that's fun, right? Like, I mean that in like an actual like you get spooked, mm-hmm. and it's like your hair stands on end, and yeah, in, in the truest sense of the word, you yeah. Know? So that that would be pretty, yeah, very eerie and creepy and odd in so many ways, and for someone who has an inherent dislike, disdain, fear of that. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: I can't like imagine. amplified, yeah. yeah. So after Seraphim told officers that Mark's brain was in the pot, they made him drag it outside. Ooh. This next move, I don't fully get. So as a means of protection, the officers started wildly firing their shotguns into the air. They then ran back into the shed, splashed holy water around, and effectively tore pieces of the shed apart to rid the property and themselves of evil spirits, mm. ignoring the fact that this was an active crime scene, not taking as much as a photo or running through any sort of protocol necessary to preserve evidence. Oh. So while that was not helpful, luckily, they wouldn't end up really needing anything in there. But that was a move that I was like, fam. Yeah, that's... I'm going to have you don't. Like, I get it. I get yeah. it. I understand and I empathize. Yeah. But we got to preserve the crime scene. That's
1: right. Yeah. The- that just comes back to what we were just talking about, like to such a degree of fear, mm-hmm. like it causes you to do something kind of, I don't want to even say unreasonable. I feel like I'm being disrespectful by saying that, Yeah, but to say like, not the best move that could have been made True. in that moment. Uh, even if you do have that kind of a fear and think that something needs to be done, what, you know, what would be... Different about waiting, thirty more minutes. Right, you know? and maybe I mean that's probably just my own ignorance, but just seems to me like not a great move. That that could have easily waited. Right. In my in my opinion, and in my perspective, I'm I'm sure that there's other perspectives out there that would disagree. So yeah, that was
0: fine. a a move that made me feel very conflicted.
1: Yeah. I but
0: from there, Seraphin showed police where Mark's remains had been buried inside one of the livestock pens in one of the corners. Mm -hmm. When they walked over to the spot, there was obviously somewhat fresh dirt on top of it, as well as a long wire protruding from the mound. They asked Seraphim about the wire, and he told them that the wire is used to attach and preserve the spinal cord of a victim of sacrifice, and that once decomposition was complete, cult members would pull on the wire to remove the spinal cord. Then they would twist it up and wear it as a necklace. And that's what they had planned to do with Mark's remains. Oh, my
1: gosh.
0: Gruesome.
1: There's, oh, there's so much just utter disrespect for somebody.
0: I know. Just in the last
1: paragraph that you just (laughs) said.
0: The element of, this is what I don't understand about this mindset. Like, if I'm I'm trying to be objective, like, objectively, this is all wrong mm -hmm. as my qualifier here. For sure. But when you're looking at a sacrifice— The idea of doing a sacrifice is obviously a sacred act Mm -hmm. in the religion. But then at the same time, there's such a low view of their sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you make those things reconcile with each other? Like if you think so lowly of this human that you would desecrate their body and remains and torture them and do all these horrible things and also regard them as... Like the holiest, most sacred thing,
1: right? A worthy sacrifice,
0: right? I don't understand. I don't understand those that two things yeah. seem to be so in opposition to each other that I don't get how none of these people ever think of that. Yeah, I. There's we, no we could, we could go a
1: long way down that rabbit trail, I think, and you and I probably will <laughs> off mic just yeah. because that's who we are as people. Yeah, but to give give our listeners a fly on the wall mini perspective on how that conversation will go later (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot to do with people really truly believing that they are interchangeable with just anybody else sure and as long as somebody else is being sacrificed it's not them yeah then it's fine then it's fine yeah and uh there's a lot more that could be said i think in in that realm but
0: i also just wonder how somebody gets there you know, yeah, which yeah. once again, we'll talk about off mic, but yeah. let's keep moving because this is going to be a really <laughs> long episode. I'm sure they then forced Seraphin to dig up Mark's body himself. They also did this at gunpoint. I would like to
1: hmm, put that okay. out there.
0: I, I realize now that I didn't type that, but he 100 <laughs> percent was being held at gunpoint.
1: I mean, there's there are two sides to that. There's the side of like, wow, that's kind of messed up and totally not legal here. Uh, and then there's the other side of it that's like, yeah, that's kind of just desserts. I feel like a
0: little bit. Yeah, was like,
1: yeah, you, you, you do deserve to be the one that does that at gunpoint full of fear and your blood just rushing and mm-hmm. your heart beating so fast. Like, so it, it goes both ways. I feel like there's like a justice to it that I'm kind of like rooting for. And there's also like a,
0: like a yucky ah, feeling at the same time. Yeah. Like, that's that wouldn't not quite,
1: that wouldn't fly here, you know? Well, it shouldn't. Well, yeah, it shouldn't, yeah, fly, it shouldn't here. fly here. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure it has, but.
0: Yeah, yeah but anyway, as he dug, Seraphin sort of nonchalantly made a comment like, I don't know why you're all making such a big deal about this one guy when there are several others buried in this same spot. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so this was a pretty stunning revelation. There were more victims. <gasps> Police brought in the other men that they had in custody to come and help dig up more of the remains of the other victims at this time. Once Mark's remains had been uncovered, there were several notable clues as to how he may have been killed. Hmm. First, his mouth had been taped shut. There was a large hole in the back of Mark's skull, which was missing his brain. Hmm. His legs had been cut off at the knee joint, which was allegedly done to make transport and burial easier, Hmm. which later on I will also get into more of a timeline of Mark's death, but that was kind of like initial observations. Yeah. After the first excavation on the property was complete, There were seven total bodies recovered in the livestock pens, as well as six more bodies recovered in other parts of the property as well.
1: 13 bodies. Oh my gosh.
0: 13 people had gone through that. Given the isolation of the place, investigators were really struck with the heaviness of the total and complete feeling of terror and abandonment and like loneliness that the victims must have felt in their Mm -hmm. final moments. There were no other homes for miles that didn't belong to the family. And when the victims screamed out in pain or in fear, there was no one there to hear them besides their attackers. Wow. So all of the remains belonged to male victims, and all of them had clearly been tortured and or mutilated to some extent, with some of the victims suffering from severe burns, deep wounds, and one had even been effectively skinned.
1: Oh, what? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm.
0: At another farm owned by the Hernandez family, two more bodies were discovered in similar condition as the 13 others. It was mind-boggling and deeply disturbing. Had all of these men been tortured to death before being sacrificed by a bloodthirsty drug cult? Like, for real? Like, is that even actually possible? So needless to say, once the media in Mexico and the United States got a hold of this story, it quickly went global. Yeah. There was an explosion of visitors to the area, all wanting to be the one to break the shocking story. Hmm. Headlines of the more sensational details dominated the press, with a satanic drug-dealing cannibals at the center of the show. Mm-hmm. On April 12th, a press conference was held at the Mexican Federal Judicial Police Headquarters in Matamoros, mm-hmm. and it was very quickly turned into an absolute zoo.
1: Oh, of course.
0: It was wild. I mean,
1: it's it's not only is it the worst fear of so many
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mexican citizens. It's also a, it's international. Yeah. There's um, Americans, mm-hmm. and at least one that I know of, mm-hmm. an American involved, which would only enhance the story to be. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it would already be kind of a global, like, oh my gosh, there's a cult yeah. that is murdering and eating people. Like, consuming them for personal gain and benefit. Sure. Like that would already probably make global news on and by itself, but because there's an international element to it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a young person. Yeah. You know, they're like, Oh my gosh. Anyway. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the four known suspects in these horrendous crimes were made to sit on a balcony and answer questions for the massive crowd and law enforcement on the case also answered questions at this time. Hmm. With more than 250 reporters in attendance, questions flew in, answers flew out. The most important bits of information gathered here were the fact that Elio, Seraphim's uncle, was the cult's resident executioner. Hmm. It was learned that the purpose of the ritual sacrifice was to keep law enforcement away from their drug trafficking operations, granting them complete immunity from trouble and a successful business. <sighs> To prove his status, Elio showed the crowd scars on his body, which were like ritualistic carvings. Hmm. And he said that they granted him what I listed above, but also allowed him to be completely physically immune to attacks from law enforcement. Like he straight up would make comments like, go ahead and shoot me. Like your bullets won't kill me. He really believed it. Wow. Elio also readily admitted to being one of the hands in Mark's murder. Wow. He was ordered to do so by the leader of the cult. So there are bits of this interview that you can actually find on YouTube if you're interested. Hmm. It's very wild. Sounds like it. Shortly after, arrest warrants for other known members of the cult were granted, including a warrant for the leader, Costanzo. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the group had caught wind of the whole operation being busted, and so they made a break from the United States to Mexico City via airplane and were very much unaccounted for at this time.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: So I feel like, as much as I don't want to, I feel like we need to give a little background on the leader to kind of, there's not really any actual making sense of a story like this, but just to kind of like mm-hmm. paint a picture of how it ended there. So okay. Ad- Adolfo yeah. de Jesus Constanzo was 26 at the time of this whole thing. He was born in Miami, Florida to his mother Dahlia. As a young child, Constanzo had made many trips with his mother to Haiti, where he first learned about voodoo practices. At the mm-hmm. tender age of 14, Constanzo was granted an apprenticeship by a local man who was a practitioner of Palo Mayombe, which I hope I said that right. That is a specific branch of the Palo religion, and it's widely regarded as one of the most powerful forms of black magic in the entire world. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. So he was huh. like a little tot learning the, the tools uh-huh. of the trade. Yeah. So as he got older, Constanzo would practice Palo Mayambe on neighbors that he didn't get along with, often leaving heads or bodies of dead animals on their doorstep. <sighs> Eventually, Constanzo made his way to Mexico City, where he found work as a model and as a tarot reader. Hmm. In his early 20s, and growing in charisma and skill at his craft, Constanzo quickly gained a following of adorers who were convinced that he was a powerful sorcerer.
1: Wow, wow.
0: Professionals who had fallen on hard times would flock to Constanzo, who would perform rituals and spells that would grant them success. Businessmen, politicians, law enforcement, doctors, you Mm -hmm. name a profession, and they'd probably visited Constanzo. As time marched forward, Constanzo amassed more followers and deeper connections with various drug cartels. One drug cartel leader was a regular customer of Constanzo's services. And upon seeing the wild success that this particular leader was gaining each day, Constanzo wanted in. Mm. He demanded a 50% cut of all of the profits moving forward. He was declined. The following day, the cartel leader, along with six members of his family and friends, were found dead in a river, each missing body parts, including hearts, ears, fingers, toes, testicles, etc.
1: Wow. Yeah. So a lot of anger. And precision, and a lot of, yeah, very intentional.
0: Very intentional. As is the case in many cults, leaders often have multiple lovers amongst their followers, and Constanzo was no exception. Hmm. One of Constanzo's girlfriends, 22-year-old Sarah Aldrete, had joined the crew when she was in college. While she was a beautiful and bright student, Sarah had fallen in with some pretty seedy characters, and eventually, she became swept up in Constanzo's cult. Hmm. She too grew in skill and notoriety for her abilities within the group and was eventually crowned a high priestess and Constanzo's sort of like second in command. Wow. So, like, her friends and family were very worried for her. Mm-hmm. They noticed like a very distinct shift in her personality once she became affiliated with the cult. Mm-hmm. In November of 1987, Sarah had connected members of the Hernandez family with Constanzo, who convinced them to renounce their belief and faith in God and to embrace Palo Mayumbe and satanic practices, promising them a boom in business, protection from the law, and the destruction of enemy dealers. In exchange for his services, Constanzo demanded 50% of the Hernandez family profits. They agreed and were quickly initiated into the group via ritual animal sacrifice. Mm. A short time later, the main headquarters of the cult moved to the isolated Rancho Santa Elena property where the animal sacrifice escalated into human sacrifice. Mm. One extremely disturbing element of this was that Constanzo had convinced his followers that if a sacrifice died in agony, then the ritual would be more powerful. Like, wow. it has to be excruciating. That is just wicked and so evil. terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so <sighs> within nine months, the group had kidnapped, brutally tortured, and killed actual real humans towards that end, most of which were members of rival drug cartels and gangs, with pretty much one notable exception. Mm, yeah. I'm going to say two exceptions, but Mark Kilroy is the one that the really stands yeah. out. Yeah. He was one of the very few random victims, and how he ended up as a victim of such a nightmarish ritual is like honestly happenstance. Mm. Wrong place, wrong time, which is so unfair.
1: Oh, I hate it's that so, so sad. Yeah.
0: So in the month leading up to Mark's murder, the cult had planned on making another human sacrifice. At this time, they had planned on killing a member of the group. An unwilling sacrifice, the intended victim fought back ultimately being shot before being tortured, which according to Constanzo rendered the whole thing basically completely useless. From there, Elio ordered members of the group to abduct the first person that they saw that they knew they could get away with snatching up. They found a young man and grabbed him, forcing him into the vehicle and putting a sack over his head. When he was brought into the shack to be sacrificed, Without looking, Elio decapitated the boy only to discover that this boy was not random, nor was he a stranger. This victim was his 14 year old cousin. Oh, no. It was a child and it was his oh, cousin. Oh, no. So that was like this a big, oh, worse. no. It's, this is awful. Yeah. At this time, Constanzo had stolen over 1,700 pounds or 800 kilograms of marijuana from a rival gang that he planned on having his members sell for a profit. Mm. In order to ensure protection for the group, another sacrifice was needed. The group rounded up an enemy drug dealer who they brought in and proceeded to torture, but the man didn't make a sound. He didn't plead, and it seemed as though he wasn't in pain, like he was not reacting to the torture. Infuriated, Constanzo began skinning the man alive, but the guy still refused to scream or cry out, which I, I'm just being honest. Wow. Gut reaction. I do not understand how that's humanly possible.
1: Yeah, that's, that's bonkers. Uh.
0: And it was like a very prolonged ordeal.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously this guy, if he's from a a rival cartel, like. He's been told, if this ever happens, you need to do whatever you can. To to, not react. Well, to not give them what they want, which is, in this case, the reaction. And he knew that, obviously. So he's like, whatever. I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well just
0: just, make it not enjoyable
1: for them. Like,
0: I cry over, like, not cry, but I do react poorly. The other day, I cut my little thingy while cutting a cucumber. And that was, like, a week-long ordeal. And this guy was literally skinned alive. Yeah. I... Can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. Anyway, yeah. when the torture was not working, they quickly killed him with a machete. Hmm. So once again, Constanzo considered this a waste of a sacrifice. So they needed another victim, one that would scream and beg and die in horrible agony. More specifically, he demanded someone with a good brain who would scream as he was being tortured. Uh, so awful. I hate even reading that. Yeah. And that got the members thinking, hey, it's spring break. College students by the hundreds of thousands. Smart people Mm -hmm. that are pretty vulnerable. So Serafin and another cult member, Malio Ponce Torres, headed to Matamoros around 1.30 a.m. on March 14th. The group was being trailed by a car driven by David Cernavaldez, Sergio Martinez Salinas, and Ovidio Hernandez Rivera. Hmm. From there, the group waited and watched, scanning high and low for their next victim. When they eventually approached Mark, they had asked him if he needed a ride, to which Mark said, yes, actually me and my friends are pretty drunk and we probably shouldn't drive back to our hotel.
1: Hmm.
0: Once he was in, it's believed that Mark was placed in handcuffs and it quickly became clear to him that these men were not offering him a ride out of the kindness of their hearts. Right. When Mark had attempted to make a getaway, they convinced him that they were police and that he was either in trouble or that by some miracle help had arrived. And so on instinct, as he was like running away, whoever it was yelled freeze, which is a very like American police officer trope, maybe whatever you want to call it. So he stopped and he turned around. And it was at that time that they grabbed him and forced him back into the vehicle. So he could have made it away away. Poor Mark. So on the way to the farm, Mark asked them why they were doing this. And he begged them like, please just let me go. I won't even tell anyone. Like, just let me go. Mm. Seraphim told him not to worry and that everything was going to be okay. When they made it to the property, Mark was bound, had tape over his mouth, and he was also blindfolded. Members of the cult took turns standing guard, making sure he wasn't going to attempt to get away, while also reassuring him that he would be okay and nothing bad was going to happen. Oh, jeez. Officers aren't positive on this, but they believe that Mark was under the impression that he was being held hostage for ransom. Mm -hmm. Around 1 p.m., Mark was removed from the vehicle and brought into the shack. Serafin brought Mark a meal, which he slowly ate in silence. Afterwards, they wrapped Mark's head in duct tape and brought him into the area of the shack where sacrifices were made, which the group referred to as their temple, which Uh, like kind of made me roll my eyes. Mark was stripped naked, made to stand over a sheet of orange plastic. His hands were secured by the suspended wires until Constanzo came in. Mark was then tortured For a short time, and then he was struck in the back of the head several times with a machete, splitting open his skull. (sighs) Constanzo then removed Mark's brain and placed it in the N'Gaga. Constanzo then cut out Mark's heart and declared, My soul is dead. I am not a human being. So they then drained his blood and also placed that into the N'Gaga with other items to complete the ritual. They then strung the wire through Mark's spine, dismembered his legs, and prepared him for burial. Wow. Whew. Wow. Yeah, it's really hard and really sad to get through that bit. So now the hunt was on to find Constanzo and the other members who had fled. Investigators knew that they could truly be anywhere. In Miami, in Houston, where he ran a cocaine operation, or in Mexico City maybe. hmm During this time, police searched Sarah's room for clues and discovered an altar decorated with black candles and blood splatter. This is important because Sarah, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to talk about Sarah for a second. Many people believe that she was a victim, that Mm -hmm. she was not acting out of her own free will, the actions that she made. I would counter That the altar in her room that was separate from the cult, Mm -hmm. having an altar and spells and blood everywhere, would argue against that. Yeah. I go back and forth about it because she was like really young and impressionable, but she was also an adult who's capable of making her own decisions. I'll get into that more later.
1: Yeah. But I did want
0: that there, out there now, just to put it out there.
1: It begs the question if her role was as a leader then it makes sense for all this to be in her room. If her role was as a key um, victim, mm-hmm. someone who would be uh, used in terrible, horrible ways regularly, mm-hmm. it would also make sense for her, that stuff to be in
0: her room. Sure. Either way, it's... Members did say... Yeah. Members did make claims that while she was never allowed in the shack when they were doing sacrifices because she was a woman... She was like the right-hand lady. She mm-hmm. was like the sidekick. Yeah. So I feel like it's hard to really know because yeah. the, the whole thing is just a mess. But anyway, from there, using information about potential hideouts that Constanzo may be holed up in, police made their way through an apartment outside of Mexico City where they found electronics, furniture, and cult paraphernalia, but no Constanzo. Another apartment was searched in an upscale neighborhood known as Colonia Roma and found more cult paraphernalia as well as things that belonged to members of the cult, like Sarah's purse and things like that. Hmm. From there, they searched another condo in Colonia Roma. Before entering, a young woman claiming to be a sister of one of the cult members informed officers that she believed that the group was headed to Miami. Hmm. Police were not convinced, but leads were running dry yeah, so the police were advised to kind of like play the colt's game, in a sense. Mm-hmm. A local shaman told them that if they destroyed the ingaga, that Constanzo's power and all of the many protection rituals he had performed would become powerless, and maybe they would find him. And so that's what they did. <laughs> they went to the shack and placed a picture of Constanzo in the ingaga. They then spread out bags of salt across the floor. They splashed every surface that they could with gasoline. And lit the place on fire. Yeah. As soon as the shack was totally destroyed, they placed a cross at the site to, like, mark it.
1: Wow. There, There's... I just can't imagine, like, that being an official (laughs) police report. Yeah. Like, and so this is what we did as police officers. Mm -hmm. Like, once again, there's a cultural divide. So I'm not saying that with, like, any degree of disrespect or anything like that. I'm saying that because that would be like so out like of the norm. It's like a counter
0: ritual. Yeah. Almost. It is.
1: And it'd be so out of the norm press to do here. You know, especially in Nebraska. So like that's definitely not gonna happen here.
0: Yeah. So so the development quickly hit the press. And once again, media across the world were in a frenzy with the story. Images of the cleansing ceremony gracing newspapers and news programs alike. Following another tip, police in Mexico then went to a location in Mexico City, referred to as Colonia Cuauhtémoc. I hope I pronounced that right. From there, they spotted different members of the cult donning disguises. Brightly colored hair, hoods or hats, and sunglasses obscuring their identities. When they spotted one of them leaving a grocery store, they followed him and put the whole area under covert surveillance. Mm. Lo and behold, the man leaving the store had been buying food for Constanzo. Finally, on May 6th, undercover police prepared to surround the apartment and take Constanzo down once and for all. But just as quickly as they started meandering near a vehicle outside, police were being shot at by members of the cult who were wow. watching from an apartment across the street. Police quickly called for backup, but the situation was absolute anarchy. Yeah. While the police and Colt exchanged gunfire, someone in one of the cult areas had been throwing american currency and coins out into the street citizens decided to try their luck and made a run for the money while yeah. the windows of shops were being blown out by gunfire like, it was chaos yeah. quickly there were over i've seen reports as to over 100 and almost 200 officers on the scene
1: what? there were
0: a lot of officers from surrounding areas that like blasted to this spot.
1: This is like a straight up war.
0: It for real. Wow. Like I get like a walking dead battle in uh-huh. my mind.
1: My my brain went to uh the whole David Koresh cult.
0: Like the shootout.
1: The shootout mm-hmm. and all because it, it was several weeks, wasn't it? Some or several days at least. Yeah. Um, but it was hundreds of people involved. And mm-hmm. yeah. Just an exchange, like
0: exchange of gunfire. Crazy. Gosh, yeah. So once the officers arrived, they kind of like established a perimeter and they got civilians to safety as the battle wore on. Mm -hmm. After 45 minutes or so, Sarah came running out of the building with another cult member, Alvaro de Leon Valdez. Sarah was shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot. I've escaped. I'm coming out. Constanzo is dead. He has killed himself. Wow. So police initially believed this to be a trap. But when they entered the smoke-filled apartment, they found one cult member alive who had been ordered to execute Constanzo and another cult member with Constanzo not wanting to be arrested, believing that he would be resurrected into a new body anyways. It's like, (sighs) they'll never take me alive. I don't want them to get my money. So that's why they're throwing money out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just gonna be resurrected anyway. So it's fine. Wow. So, So... Also in the apartment were swords, black candles, a blindfolded doll, money that had been burned on the stove, etc. Hours before the shootout, two locals stumbled upon a note that had been written by Sarah Aldrete where she gave up information about the cult's whereabouts, stating that she was being held hostage and feared for her life. Thinking it was a prank, the note was not turned in until later. After she and the remaining members of the cult were arrested, she stuck with her story that she was a victim of the cult and not a member. But it would quickly be revealed that even though Constanzo and Elio were the two who did most of the killing, she had detailed knowledge of the individual murders, had been witnessed out and about, like living life mm-hmm. as normal on many occasions, which indicated to a lot of people that she was a willing participant. Yeah. Yeah. That she also said stuff like I tried to find Mark, like I even handed out flyers. So it's like I don't know. Yeah. Either way, you still took part in it, and so there has to be accountability there,
1: right? It's it's one of those Cold weird stuff things is so that so tricky. It's tricky because she's essentially in an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. So in that in that mindset, you want to leave room for someone who is trapped, who feels trapped, who even if there is a way out. Feels like if they get out, they're gonna end up getting like roped back in again, anyway. Well,
0: it's like the typical—you are more in danger after you leave mm-hmm. an abusive relationship. That's like the most dangerous time, the few yeah. weeks. Yeah, so leading if, up to it. Yeah,
1: if if that's the case, then it makes sense, and it also would help kind of back up the whole thing about her being more of a victim than a participant Mm -hmm.
0: i think her more than any of the other victim or sorry her more than any of the other members yeah of the cult i at least can take a minute to be like i don't know what i think about her the rest of them i'm like y'all really thought that you were just gonna make a bunch of money and never get arrested that's why you did this yeah to make money and not get caught yeah yeah. Like, that's really shady. And this girl, I'm like, I just don't know.
1: It's hard to tell. But
0: yeah, it's hard people to tell. can weigh in on that. If they have opinions, please weigh in on that. Yeah. So on top of a slew of other charges, the seven cult members were also charged with 15 murders. Trials began in July of 1989, but this was a huge case with mountains of paperwork and hoops to jump through and like yeah. so many layers. Wow. So while awaiting trial, one of the members actually died from AIDS. In February 1990, the man who had killed Constanzo and the other cult member was sentenced to 30 years for their murders. Finally, in May 1994, the remaining members of the cult were sentenced to 50 years in prison each, which was the maximum available sentence for their crimes. Hmm. They initially were given 67 years each, but I guess that that was like over what the legal maximum sentence was. Oh, sure, sure. And so...
1: So they got 50 apiece. Yeah.
0: There was also some debate with American law enforcement on whether or not they were going to pursue prosecuting the group for Mark's murder. Mm -hmm. During the trial, Sarah apologized for her involvement. And from what I could find, after being sentenced to 50 years each, the United States decided not to prosecute. Hmm. The Kilroys were mostly just happy and relieved that these people were behind bars. Commending Mexican authorities for their commitment to the case and towards justice for Mark and all the others. Helen also noted that she believed that Mark's death served a greater purpose to bring peace and comfort to the families of all of the other victims of the cult. Unfortunately, three of the victims were never identified, and there are indicators that there maybe have been far more victims, mm. including up to 16 small children, as they found what? 16 pairs of children's shoes hidden on the property as well as reports of a small human skull being recovered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So after Mark's remains were discovered, he was sent home to his family who held a funeral for him on April 15th, 1989 at his family's church, our lady of Lords over 1000 people showed up to pay their respects to Mark and his family. And it was so obvious that Mark's love of life and for other people as well as his passion for helping others, shined brighter and stronger than the horrible death he had suffered. In May of 1989, the family founded the Mark Kilroy Foundation in his honor, a group that provides resources and education to youth about drugs. Hmm. The foundation brought the Kilroys all over the country, and they have spent a ton of time educating young people and offering scholarships to students. In 2009, on the 20-year anniversary of Mark's death, his family went to Matamoros and thanked local civilians and officers for their hard work in breaking Mark's case and bringing justice to their family. Helen passed away in 2014. Her funeral took place at their family church and she was buried alongside her beloved son. The land where the ranch once stood laid quiet and abandoned for many years. Wildflowers and tall grass growing in the areas that were not being dug into by families of missing persons looking for answers, wondering if their brother, son, sister, friend could have also been a victim. Mm -hmm. For today's story, I have two books that I highly recommend. We've got Buried Secrets by Edward Humes and Sacrifice by Bob Stewart and Jim Kilroy. If you're wanting more of the insights from like the investigators and a real deep dive into the darker aspects of the story, then definitely go for Buried Secrets. If you're wanting to look more into who Mark was and how his family dynamic worked and how they handled the whole ordeal like themselves, then definitely pick up Sacrifice. It's a tough read, but it's very human and super full of like compassion. And there's like cute photos and sweet stories about Mark. But yeah, that is Hmm. what I have for you today.
1: Wow. There was a lot in that whole story about just the worst of humanity i feel like oh yeah the absolute worst and yet at the same time i'm i'm uh i guess i shouldn't say i'm glad but it is good to know that there's closure on this yeah. story which feels like some kind of a victory in in some way yeah um you know certain people are in prison certain people are dead and like there's there's a degree of like justice in some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. That is a, that's an absolutely crazy story. Yeah. With a lot going on. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for listening to the unusual unsettling and unsavory story today. Make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and uh, that you leave a glowing five-star review. If you enjoyed today's episode, also make sure that you're connected with us on social media, on Instagram, at this one is a doozy and TikTok, same thing and also you can connect with us over on facebook at this one's a doozy podcast and you can also email us this one is a doozy at gmail.com with any suggestions or feedback and lastly you can connect with us over on patreon love how can they
0: do that you can either click the link in our instagram bio or in our facebook about section and you can also search This One's a Doozy podcast on Patreon, either on the app or on the website. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing here. You will get access to ad-free episodes once we get those uploaded, which mm. we're working on, I promise. Yeah. Yeah. And you will also get access to polls where you can help us decide episode topics as well as which monthly charity or memorial fund that we will be supporting. So we really appreciate everyone who has already subscribed and we are looking forward to more people joining us over there and yeah
1: yeah thanks so much for listening we will see you next time for another doozy
0: bye